Tracy McCauley. And I'm Liz Zuleika. We are cardiology pharmacists, educators, and self-declared literature crusaders. And welcome to Cardioscript, a cardiology podcast brought to you in collaboration with the ACCP Cardiology Practice and Research Network. Up now, Liz talks to Dr. John Lindsley about the popular TABI trial. We hope you enjoy. On Cardioscripts today, we are so honored to be joined by Dr. John Lindsley. Dr. Lindsley completed his PGY-1 pharmacy residency at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center and his PGY-2 cardiology residency at The Ohio State University Medical Center. He is currently a clinical pharmacy specialist in the cardiac ICU at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland, and serves as the PGY-2 cardiology program director We're excited to get to talk to him today, so thank you for joining us, John. Thank you for having me. So today on Cardioscripts, we're going to be talking about the popular TAVI trial. This was presented in March of 2020, and the purpose was to evaluate the outcomes in patients receiving oral anticoagulation alone versus a combination of oral anticoagulation and clopidogrel in patients who received a transaortic valve implantation, or a TAVI, and already had a long-term indication for oral anticoagulation. This was a parallel group randomized open-label trial with two cohorts, A and B. Before randomization, patients were divided into one of these two cohorts. Cohort A included patients without an indication for long-term anticoagulation, and cohort B, which is who we're gonna be talking about today, included patients who had an indication for long-term oral anticoagulation. Patients were randomized before TAVI in a one-to-one ratio to receive either clopidogrel or no clopidogrel for three months. For those who received clopidogrel, they received an initial one-time dose of 300 milligrams either the day before or the day of TAVI, and then 75 milligrams daily. Patients also continued oral anticoagulation they were already on. For those who were on a vitamin K antagonist, the INR goal was two. An interruption of oral anticoagulation periprocedurally was up to the attending physician. Patients were included if they were deemed suitable for TAVI and had a long-term indication for oral anticoagulation. Patients were excluded if they had a drug-eluting stent implanted within three months prior to TAVI or a bare metal stent within one month. For the primary outcome, there were two. One was all bleeding, and the second was non-procedure-related bleeding. So bleeding events and vascular complications were classified by the Valve Academic Research Consortium II, or VARC II definitions, and procedure-related events were defined by Bleeding Academic Research Consortium, or VARC Type IV Severe Bleeding. There were also two secondary endpoints to mention. The first was this composite of cardiovascular death, non-procedure-related bleeding, stroke from any cause, or myocardial infarction. The second was a composite of cardiovascular death, ischemic stroke, or MI. A total of 313 patients were included. They were about 81 years of age, about 45% were female, 73% NYHA class 3 or 4, had a median Euro score of about 15, 
a median STS risk score of 3.2, about 63% were classified as having normal flow, high gradient aortic stenosis, about 95% at AFib, 28% diabetes, and 5% with a previous aortic valve surgery. About 60% had an ejection fraction of greater than 50% and 8% an ejection fraction of 30% or less. About 47% of patients received a Sapien 3 valve and about 25% a core valve Evolute R. With regards to oral anticoagulation, 75% were on a vitamin K antagonist and about a quarter on a direct oral anticoagulant. And with regards to the procedure, about 87% received their valve transfemorally. At 12 months, all bleeding occurred in 21.7% of those on oral anticoagulation alone and 34.6% in those on the combination of oral anticoagulation and clopidogrel. There is found to be a statistically significant difference with the p-value of 0.01. For non-procedure-related bleeding in the oral anticoagulation group, it occurred at an incidence of 21.7% and 34% in those on the combination therapy. Again, this was found to be statistically significant with a p-value of 0.02. For the first secondary composite endpoint occurred for those on oral anticoagulation alone at 31.2%, for those on the combination therapy at 45.5%, for the second secondary composite, it occurred in 13.4% of those on oral anticoagulation and 17.3% of those on combination. For that first composite, it was found to be non-inferior and superior. And for that second composite endpoint, it was only found to be non-inferior. And so, John, I think even maybe before getting into the trial, it may be nice to kind of take a step back and talk about some of the evidence we have leading up to this trial with regards to current practice, guideline recommendations, and what was the evidence really driving that? Sure. So that's a, a great point. And actually, it's why I think this trial is a pretty exciting new evidence for us. As you suggested, uh, you know, the evidence leading up to this trial is, is pretty limited. It involves people's expert opinions, mostly, and following what was done in our initial trials, you know, that were performed to look at the evaluation of whether or not TAVR or TAVI was superior to SAVR. So um, not really evaluating the anticoagulant or antithrombotic strategy at all, but instead a, what was put forth in those initial TAVR trials. And, and that's really what we've been left with for the last 10 years or so, or even longer, right? We haven't had anything that's come to strictly evaluate what antithrombotic therapy would be best for these patients in terms of uh, preventing any kind of thrombotic or ischemic events, and also at the same time, uh, preventing any of that, that bleeding that we've talked about. Traditionally, I think, and I think probably done across the country, is that patients requiring anticoagulation obviously uh, have, have a need to continue on that. And so that matches what we've done in this trial here as well. And then the second is, and, and this is where this trial comes into play, is whether or not those patients you know, need any antiplatelet therapy. In our practice here, and I, I think across the board, I, I, that aspirin maybe gets added instead of clopidogrel as you're added uh, antiplatelet when you're on an oral anticoagulation. Um, and so I think this is a different choice than what we would have uh, made potentially for patients. And so I think that's, that's one thing. I'm not sure uh, that it matters, but I think that's kind of where I'm at in terms of where, where therapy goes. And you know, some of the other, I think, potential interesting topics out there, which aren't going to be answered by this trial, but will be answered by some of the others are 
whether or not anticoagulation is needed, you know, in those who don't need anticoagulation. And I think there's some some more data there uh, in terms of whether or not there's some micro microthrombus that may be clinically significant or insignificant unknown. And then I think the other is, you know, looking at the other data that's available that I'm aware of is, you know, looking at lower doses of rivaroxaban, which did not pan out to be a great strategy. And so I think we're still left in a expert opinion place right now. And so I think this is this adds some value um, to what we already know. Kind of shifting gears back to popular tabby, what were your initial thoughts? Yeah, I think the the first thing that I think has to come into play and which comes into play for all of these trials we have, whether it's TAVR or ACS and stenting, et cetera, is the um, use of, of bleeding as your primary outcome. And I'll say that with a kind of, because you have to say it, and at the same time, I understand exactly why it happened. There's no way to power this study for thrombotic outcomes. Luckily, they aren't that common. But clearly, some people definitely do have strokes and do have paraprocedural MI, et cetera, and have negative events that are thrombotic in nature. Now, that's not to say that bleeding isn't bad. Bleeding is definitely not, does not portend to good outcomes. It's associated with morbidity. It's associated with interruptions in your antithrombotic therapy, which can then lead to ischemic outcomes. And so I think that that's what we have. And I think even in our ACS population and stenting populations, where we have more patients, we are still using bleeding as our primary driver of these outcomes. So I don't think that we have to be super concerned that that is the outcome of measure, but I think it's something to note. I do think that when you look over the population at as a whole, though, it represents a low-risk population. Elderly, obviously, that's who gets TAVR. That's who we see who has the indication for the need for a TAVR. But I do think that we're looking at an SDS score of 3%. So these people would have been considered um, a little bit of a lower risk. They got the most common valves on the market. They got their procedure done transfemorally. This is like a pretty common population to me. And then in terms of their anticoagulation indication, almost everybody is indicated based on atrial fibrillation, which again, very common in our elderly and our patients who have aortic stenosis. And I think the that is we know that those people at the time of TAVR have a higher risk of having stroke. So I think this is a good population to look at in terms of that they have the risk of having some of these negative outcomes, but they're also a little bit of a lower risk in terms of their SCS score, in terms of um, seeing some of those outcomes. So John, could you elaborate a little bit more on what you found interesting with regards to their study design? I think the other interesting things to, to talk about, I think, in terms of design are their definition of bleeding, specifically the inclusion of access site bleeding as being non-procedural is the one that I have a little bit of a hard time with. And I think that to me is probably why the bleeding rate is so high, especially based on the other trial design component, which was that they continued warfarin through the procedure for patients with a target INR of two. So still anticoagulated, right? So maybe trying to hedge on the lower end of our therapeutic range, but still anticoagulated. And then the ability or option, I guess, to complete your procedure while therapeutically anticoagulated with your DOAC. And we don't know how many people did that. To my knowledge, I was unable to find that information. So that would not be a practice that I've seen happen. And, and I would say that I'm not sure that clinically it's necessary, right? So we know that um, in terms of bridging patients with atrial fibrillation, I, I think it's hard to know what this, these patients' CHADS VAS score is on a median. Um, they do have the risk factors. They're old. They have AFib. There's a good number that have hypertension and diabetes. So they're not a, they're not a, a low, low risk in terms of CHADS, but they're probably not our CHADS VAS 5, 6, 7, potentially. Not all of them, at least. So I think 
that's the other piece. And definitely, I think that including therapeutic anticoagulation around the time of your procedure will lead to more access site bleeding. I think we know that from other procedures, you know, even if you think about like ablations, et cetera, like access site bleeding is higher when we continue anticoagulation with our DOACs and things like that. It, that's not, that doesn't surprise me by any means. And I'm not sure, but I'm not sure that that's clinically relevant, right? You have to have a pretty bad access site bleed for us to be super concerned. If it means that we help pressure for 10 more minutes, that's not great. And that, and that's, we don't want to have those complications, but at the same time that that that's not probably leading to a truly negative outcome. One of the uh, other things I think that is is notable is that we don't see a signal towards increased thrombotic events. And the trial is small, right? We're talking about 300-ish patients. So I don't think we're going to see that. But I think that if you saw it, you could, that would definitely be concerning. And I think we don't see that. So I think that that's a good sign that we don't see this, this risk. There was a very low number of strokes overall in the group as well. So I think that's also a, a nice finding to see that we didn't have some unexpected outcomes from doing this randomization. And then I think for the pharmacists and all of us, I think the conversation about selection of anticoagulant, especially in today's age, we are constantly talking about who should be on a DOAC, who should be on warfarin, which DOAC. I think these things are like superior conversations. They happen all the time. We are doing, we are talking about what's the best choice out there all together. I think it's important to note 75% of our patients got warfarin. Low use of doaxit overall, so 25%. And then in that 25%, predominantly apixaban and rivaroxaban. And that just matches probably current practice as well, right? So in this trial, like they suggested, and, and in our current practice, we're not switching people's anticoagulation. If people come in on doax and they have their tower and they need anticoagulation, we're continuing a DOAC. And uh, there is reasonable data retrospective out there suggesting that these are equivalent uh, in terms of their outcomes for patients who have had TAVR. So I think that's a good thing, but I do think we don't know whether or not one is better than the other. And I do, and, and to do that, I think you'd have to do some kind of randomization uh, or at least pr- prospective observational, you know, evaluation of, of, of that selection. With that, I think we don't know time and therapeutic range when people leave and then appropriate dose adjustments of our DOACs as well. I think a lot of these patients are really going to be borderline for whether or not a full dose uh, DOAC versus a, a reduced dose is the right for them. That's another piece to me is whether or not we gave people the right doses. And we know across the board from other indications as well that when DOACs are inappropriately dosed, we have more bleeding slash or more ischemic events. And so I think important to kind of recognize that as well. And John, I think sometimes the waters can get a little muddy when people are going about and managing these patients' antithrombotic regimens. So could you kind of walk us through your thought process and when you use what and when maybe you don't? Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think that with a lot of these patients, the other piece that comes into play uh, with that is so one, I think I, I like to you know, obviously take into account what, what our patients are on at home and seeing whether or not they have an indication for anticoagulation. I think that's a big driver for me in terms of um, selection of what we're doing next. So does our patient have anticoagulation needs or not? And if they do, then figuring out what they were on at home, does that still make sense for them? Is that the right choice? And then the next piece that I often incorporate and which commonly happens, I think, in a lot of our TAVR patients as they have their coronaries assessed is whether or not they had a recent PCI. Um, and so I find that a lot of our patients have had a, ring, a recent single vessel PCI or something like that. 
And which case then they need a P2I12 inhibitor on top of their anticoagulation. And then they become less of a TAVR patient in terms of their regimen. And I think the TAVR kind of falls to the wayside in terms of what you're doing, because I think that their stent is probably needs something a little bit more protective than their TAVR. And whatever you're doing for their stent will accomplish whatever you need to do for their TAVR. So I think if they've had a PCI, I think you can go down the route of how would I treat this patient's PCI and their stenting and kind of say, whatever I do for that, will cover their TAVR. If they haven't had a, or if they haven't had a PCI done prior to their TAVR, I think then you get into this area of whether or not people need an antiplatelet with their anticoagulant. And I would say that mostly we're giving people aspirin, except some people, we are deeming them be very high bleeding risk. So if you've had prior bleeding with your combination of aspirin and oral anticoagulant, or, uh, and we might drop that aspirin. And I think that all that's done in the air and the knowledge of that, we don't know the answer, even though we know what was done in the trials and what what you know guidelines recommend. And I, and I think you can stand on that a little bit in terms of that we, we don't have anything. And now I think this trial now helps us say that we probably can drop um, that antiplatelet for a lot of patients and or for all patients. And I, I'm curious to see where people go with that. I, I don't know that we know. Well, John, thank you so much for your time and for joining us on Cardioscopes. Great. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Next week on Cardioscripts, I'll be joined by Dr. Paul Dobish to discuss the Carvaggio trial. Thanks for tuning in to Cardioscripts. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Cardioscripts and check out our website at Cardioscripts.com. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions are those of the individuals on today's episode. The ACCP Cardiology PRN is not responsible for the presented content or its accuracy.